What's going on, everyone? Back at it with another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Mayalari. Going to be giving you guys a new episode before the weekend begins. Hope you guys are all doing well and had a great week. So today I'm going to talk about the NCAA conference realignment with some big programs switching conferences over the last few weeks, most notably UCLA and USC, going to the Big Ten from the Pac-12. Then I will transition to the MLB and talk about the Red Sox and their recent struggles against the Yankees last week. I will also touch upon the Baltimore Orioles and their win streak, which was snapped, but still a historic streak by them. I'll touch upon the Seattle Mariners' current 14-game win streak before the All-Star break. And as always, I'll talk about the LA Angels, because I'll show you Otani's greatness and how well he's been playing as of late. At the end, I will recap the Home Run Derby, and then also touch upon the MLB All-Star game as well, with a recap of that. So to start things off with the NCAA Conference Realignment, USC and UCLA will be moving from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten as early as 2024, it seems like. Now there will be 14 teams, or there are currently 14 teams in the Big Ten in the SEC. Now there will be 16 teams in each of those conferences, with the SEC adding Oklahoma and Texas. One thing that I am not a fan of with this move is that the geographic differences between these schools, the locations, are so different. Now you're going to have to have USC and UCLA flying to the East Coast to play Penn State in Pennsylvania or Rutgers in New Jersey on a weekly basis. I think the way the conferences are now with the Pac-12 being all West Coast schools, I think I think it makes it a lot easier. And I think at the end of the day, I think this move is going to kill the integrity, the competition, and the life of college football. I feel like now there's going to be two super conferences where, yeah, you might get more views. I think it might be more interesting, too, because now it's just two 16-team super conferences that have all the talent in college football. But I think it kills the other three conferences, and that's why I'm not a fan of it. That's why I think it kills the life of college football, because I think the Big 12 and the Pac-12 are going to be struggling now without those four schools. And then also the ACC, who knows what's going to happen there if you were to lose Clemson to Florida State, trying to jump ship from one conference to another. I think that's going to hurt the ACC, too. So I think this hurts really the entire alignment of college sports, especially college football. I think it hurts the college football playoff with there only being four schools in the college football playoff. I think you have to change that to at least eight now, maybe 16, just to make things more interesting and make things more fair. But I think this kills the equality of competition within college football. I think at the end of the day, the Big 12 and the Pac-12 now are going to have to make huge adjustments to what they already had. I mean, they didn't, they weren't making as much money as the SEC and Big Ten before. Now they have to fill in huge gaps without schools like USC and UCLA, especially for the Pac-12. It's two big losses. And I saw in a quote from the LA Times that the Pac-12 actually distributed $33.6 million to each of its member institutions in the 2019 season. The Big Ten offered on average $49.2 million to each of its 14 members, with the 12 longest tenured institutions receiving $54.3 million that year. And then I saw another thing from Fox Sports, an article from them, that the Pac-12 brought in just $341 million in revenue last year and distributed only $19.8 million per school in the fiscal 2021 year. While you look at it, it's the least among all Power 5 conferences, and the Big Ten divided up $680 million to its member schools in the same fiscal year. So if you look at it, the Pac-12, $341 million in revenue to the Big Ten, $680 million. $19.8 million per school in the Pac-12 to over $49.2 million to every school in the Big Ten in 2019. And in 2021, that's 680 divided by 14, which would be right around $48.5 million on average. So that's $48 million per school on average in the Big Ten this past year to the Pac-12 
getting just $19.8 million per school. So this is really just a money move for those two schools, USC and UCLA. They're going to make a lot more money, especially considering, I mean, they carried these conferences money-wise the last few years. And Colin Coward is a big proponent of this move. He thinks it's a great move for USC and UCLA because both schools have been carrying the Pac-12 for years now. And he was saying on The Herd, which is his podcast and show on Fox Sports, that most of those teams and most of that money that that conference makes is USC and UCLA. He said USC and UCLA make up almost half of the conference's total revenue and that the Pac-12 really relies on those two schools. I think if you look at it all in all, the Pac-12 is a struggling conference that will struggle now even more without these two schools for years to come. Without their two top revenue getters and most marketable and historic teams, I think this is going to be a huge difference maker in college football. And also, if you look at another part of it, there's no teams from the Pac-12 in the college football playoff since 2016. And if, you, if you're losing USC and UCLA, your chances of having one go down a lot more, especially with USC. UCLA, not as great, but U, USC recruits very well still even in their down years they still recruit well that's going to be a big loss for the Pac-12 then you look at on the other side Texas and Oklahoma already making the move to the SEC as early as 2025 they've started the transition now since last summer July of 2021 last summer is when they started the transition from the Big 12 to the SEC and according to Bleach Report SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey said that the SEC is a super league and that the SEC adding Texas and Oklahoma were better moves than the Big Ten adding USC and UCLA. Football-wise, both of those schools, Texas and Oklahoma, probably are better right now than USC and UCLA. Maybe not USC, but definitely better than UCLA. I think both conferences, in my opinion, though, now become super leagues. And the Big 12 commissioner, so just on the other side of all these moves, Brett Yormach said he would be open to allowing Oklahoma and Texas to depart earlier than July 1st, 2025. He believes that it could be beneficial for both schools, Texas and Oklahoma, and then also the Big 12 in general, if there was an early departure. It would be mutual beneficial sides for both, both sides. It would be mutually beneficial for both ways to split early. But how does this affect the college football playoff is my, is my main take on this. I see now with it being two 16-team super conferences, you can't just have two super conferences with 16 teams in each of them and only have four teams make the college football playoff. I've said for years now it should be at least eight teams, and now it probably should make the chance. There should be a chance to make the jump now to sixteen. There should at least be a thought about it, considering this sixteen teams, and let's say there's six teams from the Big Ten and six teams from the SEC, and then two ACC teams and one Big Twelve team and one Pac Twelve team that makes it. I think that's a lot better than having just four teams make it and three of them be from the SEC and one from the Big Ten. I think you got to get things more. Interesting here. I think if you go six teams from the PEC, excuse me, six teams from the SEC, six teams from the Big Ten, two from the ACC, one from the PAC 12, and one from the Big 12, I think that's a lot better of a setup. I mean, who knows if that's going to be how it is, but I've said for years it should be at least eight teams to make things more competitive. Maybe even 10 teams at least. Make it more interesting with two teams get a buy in that case. But I think maybe shorten the season by two regular season games. So you play 10 games rather than 12, so you cut down two out-of-conference games so that the season still finishes in early January, so you're not behind, so the combine, everything's still in line to be the dates that it's always have been. But I think it should be a 16-team college football playoff, at least 18, but 16-team college football playoff. You cut the last two games of regular season, so you get rid of two out-of-conference games and play two out-of-conference games rather than four. Ten total games in a season, make it a 
eight to sixteen team tournament. So you play two less regular season games to fit in more time before the cultural finals when it usually is, which is about the second Monday in January, and have sixteen teams make it and have it be a three week tournament. Or if it's eight teams, whatever whatever it's two weeks or three weeks. I think that makes the college football playoff a lot better. So Matt Hayes, who writes about college football online, said that Vanderbilt makes $80 million in the SEC, while Northwestern makes $80 million in the Big Ten. And then if you compare it to what USC was making in the Pac-12 along with UCLA, they were making in the lower range of $30 million. So if you compare that to what Vanderbilt and Northwestern are making, that's $50 million of a difference. Northwestern and Vanderbilt, two programs that aren't as good, especially Vanderbilt, one of the worst college football programs in the Power Five. But you're looking at USC, a program that recruits very well, always in the media just because it's USC, and probably have a better year this year, especially with Lincoln Riley. They're going to be a very good team, I'd imagine. Make $50 million less than what Vanderbilt makes in the SEC when they're the worst SEC football program, and then $50 million less than what Northwestern's making in the Big Ten, and they're not even competitive really in the Big Ten. So that's the reason USC is making the jump. They're making $30 million in the Pac-12 compared to $80 million they'd be making in the Big Ten. And that's the main reason they're making this jump. It's the money at the end of the day. That's the main reason. And I do think now this leaves the ACC, Pac-12, and Big 12 in tough waters. Now they have to make a change in order to stay afloat here. And the ACC and Pac-12 were actually talking about forming a loose partnership according to CBS Sports which could include a championship game in Las Vegas. From CBS Sports, in an article, there could be regular season matchups between the conferences, so teams within the conferences. The conference champs would also face off in a championship game. So whoever wins the Pac-12 and the ACC would face off in a championship game in Las Vegas. The ACC, though, while I'm talking about them, actually just announced three weeks or so ago now that they're adopting a new 3-5-5 format for scheduling of football games starting in 2023. There will be no more divisions in the ACC. Rather than divisions, BC will be playing three schools. Rather than playing Georgia Tech, Louisville, Florida State, Clemson, Syracuse, NC State, and Pittsburgh every year in the ACC, now they're going to play three schools that will be consistent every single year. So it's a 3-5-5 format. And from the ACC in a tweet, in 2023, the ACC will adopt a 3-5-5 football scheduling model where all 14 teams will compete in one division. So teams will now play three primary opponents annually and also face the other 10 teams twice during a four-year cycle, once at home and once on the road. So if you look at it now, BC will be playing Miami, Pittsburgh, and Syracuse on a yearly basis, and they won't be playing Louisville and Clemson and Florida State and Georgia Tech and Pittsburgh and NC State every single year like they have, since it's now no divisions now. There's no two separate divisions in the ACC. It's now all one division, one conference. And some other programs have had this happen, some other conferences, and most notably the Pac-12 said in 2023 they're going to get rid of divisions within their conference, and then the Mountain West as well. So now the ACC becomes the fifth conference in the FBS to eliminate divisions. So now for the ACC championship, it won't be the winner of each division face each other. It will now be the two teams with the best winning percentages in the conference of the ACC will face off in the championship game. The ACC tried to create the three-team pods with rivalries in mind. So I saw in a Yahoo Sports article that NC State and Wake Forest 
played each other on a yearly basis since 1910, and now this will actually be the first time, it will be in 2025, it will be the first time that they will not face each other. And that's actually one of the longest consecutively played series in the entire sport of college football. So even with the three team pods created in mind, we're facing the three same opponents and trying to make it rivalry-based, you're losing the NC State and Wake Forest game that has played every single year since 1910, which is wild that it's been that long. But like the Pac-12 and like the Mountain West, the ACC will be getting rid of divisions. And in doing so, there will now be three teams that everyone faces every year, like I said. So Louisville, for example, will be facing Georgia Tech, Miami, and Virginia. That's actually not a bad three for them to face. It actually sets them up very well to succeed a lot in the ACC in the future. Only Miami really gives them trouble there, in my opinion. Uh, especially now, if this were to be this season, I'd say Miami's the only team that could give them trouble. But then BC will be facing Miami, Pittsburgh, and Syracuse on a yearly basis. Miami recruits very well, so I think that might be tough facing them every single year. But BC is usually even with Pittsburgh and Syracuse on a year-to-year basis when they play. Some years are better, some years those two teams beat us. But I think at the end of the day, this will help BC, especially considering they don't have to play Clemson on a yearly basis. Now, although it's exciting playing them, I mean, the competitiveness just isn't there between those two schools on a yearly basis, especially recruiting-wise. So just as I was talking about the Pac-12 and ACC potentially forming a potential partnership, there was also talks between the Big 12 and the Pac-12 that they would create a partnership. But over three long Zoom conferences in the past few weeks, they mutually decided that it would not work out, according to reports. Both conferences are losing two of the biggest programs, as I've said, USC and UCLA in the Pac-12, and also Oklahoma and Texas in the Big 12. They're just trying to find a way to stay afloat. The Big 12 and the Pac-12 both now have to find ways to try to cope with losing four big programs. With that being said, who knows what's going to happen with the ACC. I know they were trying to create a partnership with the Pac-12, but there are reports coming out now that North Carolina, Clemson, Florida, St. Virginia could possibly join the SEC at some point. And CBS sports writer Dennis Dodd said that every ACC team would actually have to pay a $500 million dead fee in order to get out of the ACC to, to leave for the SEC. So they have to pay $500 million as a fee in order to get out. And even though they might be making more money in those two conferences, I don't think it's worth them giving up $500 million because you're not going to make all that money back right away. It's going to take years to get $500 million back. So I think at the end of the day, they're going to end up staying in the conference, in the ACC. If any were to leave, maybe Florida State and Clemson, but... Virginia and North Carolina leaving, I just don't understand why they would, since the other two schools historically, Clemson over the last 10 years have been very good, and then Florida State historically, but North Carolina and Virginia, I don't know why they'd be trying to transition to the SEC, maybe just because of money, but competitively and historically, they probably don't belong there. So to close out this college sports and college football segment, other news within college sports Kirby Smart, who actually just won the national championship with Florida this past year for football, signed a new 10-year, $112.5 million contract extension with the Georgia Bulldogs to stay their head coach. In six years at Georgia, he is 66-15 and with an 8-15 win percentage with six bowl wins and two college football playoff appearances with also winning a national championship this past year. So not a bad deal for him, especially considering how historically great of a coach he is, especially over the last five years now. So now I'm going to transition to the Red Sox and talk about them. They've been struggling a ton this year in the AL East, hitting 237 as a team with 3.76 runs per game in the AL East, along with 4.97 of an ERA versus AL East opponents. They've scored 143 runs in 38 games 
in the AL East, while they have 137 versus AL West teams in 26 games. I know it's a much different division, especially competitively, but still, you can score six less runs than you have in the AL East in 12 less games. So 143 runs in 38 games in the AL East, and then in the AL West, 137 runs, so just six runs less in 26 games, just 12 games less. They were hitting so well on the West Coast, and typically the Red Sox, that's where they struggle is going out West. They're 36-9 versus all of the ball clubs, while holding a 12-26 record in the AL East. The Red Sox are 5-12 over their last 17 games. They're winless in all 11 series this year against AL East opponents. 0-10-1, they do have a series split against the New York Yankees. This is actually the first time ever that the Red Sox didn't have a series win at an All-Star break against the AL East. 38 of their 69 remaining games, though, are against AL East opponents. 9 with the Yankees, 11 with Baltimore, 9 with the Tampa Bay Rays, and 9 with Toronto. The Sox have lost 6 of their last 7 games and 12 of their last 17. I saw from Brian Barrett of WEI, who crunched up a ton of stats about the Red Sox pitching staff. Red Sox starters in June had 2.91 ERA, which was good enough to be first in the MLB with 16 wins, a 1.19 whip, which was seventh in the MLB. They were first in wins with 16 wins. Then in July, a 7.31 starting ERA, which is 30th in the MLB, dead last. Zero wins, which is dead last again, 30th in the MLB, with a 1.73 whip, 30th yet again, worse in the MLB, with a 10.3% walk rate, 30th in the MLB again, and a 3 or 4 opponent batting average, which is 30th in the MLB again. So they were first in wins, ERA, and then seventh in whip in June. Then in July, dead last in ERA, dead last in wins, dead last in whip, dead last in walk rate, and dead last in opponent batting average. And then also 27th in innings pitch with 72 and two-thirds innings on the mound. The Red Sox are 4-6 and six versus the New York Yankees this year, 2-8 and eight versus the Tampa Bay Rays, 3-7 and seven versus Toronto, and 3-5 and five versus Baltimore. They've scored 143 runs in the AL East and allowed 206 runs as a whole in the AL East, which is a minus 63 run differential in divisional games. Versus the Yankees, the Red Sox have a 6-6-3 ERA on the year in 10 games. They're worse versus any opponent this year, actually. They've hit only 217 as a team versus the Yankees. They're second worst against any team this year. The Reds actually are first. The Red Sox had to face the Reds in a two-game series when they came to town, and the Red Sox faced Luis Castillo, who stoned them, and the Red Sox just couldn't hit. Castillo was unreal that game, but the Yankees have the Red Sox hitting just 217, which is the Red Sox' second worst batting average was any team this year, as I said. And if you look at it, a lot of the Red Sox players who got hot at one point in June have been ice cold so far through July. And to start off, Randy Cordero, he's one of 22 with 18 strikeouts in his last eight games. His last five games, over 16, 15 strikeouts. Absolutely brutal to see, especially when you consider what we traded for him. Andrew Benintendi was an all-star this year, just played in the all-star game. You traded Andrew Benintendi for Frenchy Cordero. In July, Cordero's 7 for 48 with a 148 batting average, a 196 on base percentage, a 446 OPS, 28 strikeouts with three walks, which is abysmal. He should be out of the lineup just for that in 15 games in July. 28 strikeouts to three walks. 0 for 16 in his last five games of 15 strikeouts. 1 for 22 in his last eight games with 18 strikeouts. He's got to be out of the lineup. The Red Sox need a first baseman with a deadline more than anything. Bobby Dahlbeck can't cut at first base anymore. Franchi Cordero can't cut at first base anymore. Christian Vasquez is not a first baseman. The Red Sox need to go get a first baseman. I don't care if it's Christian Walker from the Diamondbacks. I don't care if it's Dominic Smith from the Mets. I don't care if it's CJ Crone from the Colorado Rockies. 
It could be any of those three guys. They're upgrades no matter who you get of those three and put them in this Red Sox lineup, especially considering the Red Sox really need a first baseman. You can't have a guy over there first that can't play first defensively and then also can't hit. Another guy that's been cold as of late, Jaron Duran. 5 for 41 in his last 12 games with one RBI, 17 strikeouts to two walks, a 122 batting average, a 163 on base percentage, a 171 slugging percentage, and a 334 OPS. His batting average has dropped to 252 in the year after being 300 plus for just about every game up until July. In 15 games of July, he's 10 for 55 with four RBIs hitting 182 with a 515 OPS, 19 strikeouts to three walks. He struck out now 35% of his at-bats in July. He's an automatic strikeout at this rate with French Cordero. You know, every time they come to the plate, if they get three at-bats in the game, they're, they're going to strike out at least one of them, probably two or three in French Cordero's case. And for Duran, he was actually doing so much better for some time, being a lot more patient at the plate. Now, over the last 12 games or so, he's been swinging at things in the dirt like he did last year, swinging and missing on fastballs, which he was very good at, actually, at the start of this year when he came in for Kike Hernandez when Kike was hurt in June. But the Red Sox need to figure something out, especially with these strikeouts. I mean, Cordero can't be in the lineup. Dahlbeck strikes out a ton, too. It's just the Red Sox need to make moves on this trade deadline, and who knows what they're going to do. But you really need to go get a first baseman. You really do. Maybe Josh Bell from the Nationals. I'd love that. Josh Bell, Christian Walker, C.J. Crone, Dominic Smith. I'd take any of those guys. They're all upgrades of first base defensively and offensively. Dom Smith probably isn't a great first baseman, not really even having that great of a season either but probably better than Dahlbeck, probably better than Cordero. But I think if if you're going to get a new first baseman, go all out and get a good one. Like Josh Bell who's hitting 300 plus, hitting 20 home runs just about on the year, a better defensive first baseman, or go get Christian Walker or CJ Crone. Crone's having a great year as well, especially offensively. The Red Sox versus the Yankees last week, last weekend right before the All-Star break, was absolutely abysmal to watch. The Sox actually won Friday night somehow. It was an absolute nail-biter, but the Sox eked out a win. Tanner Houdini, as Chris Cotillo called him on MassLive.com, called Tanner Houck, Tanner Houdini, for his ability to get out of two huge jams in the ninth inning and the 10th inning of last Friday night's game. The Red Sox were down by one run in the bottom, or the top of the ninth, that is. Tanner Houck got a dribble back to the mound with the runners on first and second, nobody out. Took the ball through to Devis the third, giving an awful throw, goes on the left field line. Verdugo gets it, the Yankees end up tying the game. Ends up being runners on second and third, nobody out with a tied score in the top of the ninth. So you have to think at this point, or this is the bottom of the ninth, actually. I was right originally. This is the bottom of the ninth because it was at Yankee Stadium. You've got to think at this point the Yankees win this game. Second and third, nobody out, tied score. You have to think the Red Sox are going to lose. But after intentionally walking Aaron Hicks, which was the best idea, I always think that's a great idea, is to give, your, give yourself a chance with a force out of the plate. Things worked out for the Sox. Intentionally walking Aaron Hicks. Then Jose Trevino comes up, grounded into a double play, huge play for the Red Sox, shot bounce into Devis, who threw home to Vasquez, who cut the runner down at home plate to prevent the walk-off win. So the Red Sox end up getting out of that with two outs now. They get out of that jam to a degree. Second and third, two outs now with DJ LeMahieu coming up, so the damage could still be done. Tanah Houdini gets out of it magically with a ground ball back to the pitcher's mound, throws it first, gets out of the inning. Then the Yankees in the bottom of the 10th, if the Red Sox did not score in the top of the 10th, the Yankees had the bottom of the 10th, they had runners on 2nd and 3rd with DJ LeMayhew at 3rd base being the game-winning run. With one out, bases loaded, Gleyber Torres coming up. The Sox somehow managed to get another double play, this time from G to Downs with a nice flip to Xander Bogots to Bobby Dahlbeck 
to end the inning, from Downs to Bogart to Dahlbeck to end the inning. Houdini gets out of another one. Then in the top of the 11th, Zayna Bogart scored with two outs on a wild pitch from Yankees reliever Michael King, who actually played for BC, threw a ball in the dirt that hit Jose Trevino's mask, went into the grass in front of the pitcher's mound, and Bogart's ended up taking off. Very smart decision, very decisive decision. You have to make that decision very quick. Bottom of the 11th, Ryan Brazier comes in, surprisingly closed the doors. Red Sox win the game. He picks up his first save of the season with a couple strikeouts of Aaron Hicks and Josh Donaldson. And the Red Sox somehow escape and win the game when they honestly, multiple times, you got to think they're going to lose the game in the ninth and the 10th inning. But Tanner Houdini, as I said, got out of it. Credit to Chris Cotillo with that nickname. But not all was well in that Yankee series last weekend. Friday night was great. And then Saturday and Sunday were just catastrophic. I'm not going to really get into the nitty-gritty of everything, but Saturday's game started off great with the Raphael Devis home run against Jamison Tyone in the top of the first inning, and then Xander Bogats followed that up with an uh, with a single, but after that, the Sox only had one hit and one other base runner besides that in the whole game after that in the first inning. Their third hit of the game came from Kevin Pulecki in garbage time, a double in the ninth inning, and then their only other base runner was a Jackie Bradley Jr. walk in the seventh inning. The Sox ended up losing that game 14-1. to Absolutely devastating game. The Sox were actually outscored in both of their final two games, 14-1 to and 13-2, to for a combined score of 27-3. They were out-hit over those games, 26-9. to The Yankees just absolutely dominated them. Then on Sunday, you would think things couldn't get worse after losing 14-1 to on Saturday. Chris Sale could only get two outs on Sunday in his second start of the season against the Yankees, so the second start of the season in general, but second start of the year for Chris Sale after coming back from a rib injury before he took a 106.7 mile an hour comeback off the left hand and fractured his pinky finger was off the bat of Aaron Hicks. Now he's out four to six weeks, believed to be back at some point this season, he says, but we'll see. He only has 12 starts now over the last three years from Tommy John surgery to a rib injury to a broken finger. Chris Sale just can't catch any luck. On Sunday, the Yankees had an eight-run fourth inning as the Yankees lineup raked off Ryan Brazier, who gave up four earned runs in the two-thirds of an inning he pitched. Then Jake Diekman came in, gave up four runs as well, on three hits and two walks and just one inning of work. Even worse, the Sox used John Schreiber in a meaningless game in the seventh inning, and he ends up giving up two runs on two hits, raising his ERA to a 1.6 ERA. Meaningless game, why bring him in? Only positive, which I guess at the end of the day, maybe it's because the All-Star break was coming, they wanted to keep him at least warm and not be rusty when he comes back from the All-Star break, but the only positive was that Jeter Downs hit his first career home run on Sunday in the third inning off Garrett Cole. Jeter Downs was actually 2-for-3 in that game, one of the only bright spots for the Sox. The Yankees reached their 64th win before the All-Star break, which is a franchise record. The Yankees have been led by Matt Carpenter, who has had a career revitalization in his resurgence this year for the Yankees. In a graphic from Fox, I saw that he became just the fourth Yankee with seven-plus RBI games in a single season, joining legends Joe DiMaggio, who did it in 1940, Lou Gehrig, who did it twice, once in 1930 and once in 1934, and then Babe Ruth, who did it in 1929. He's in great company there with three legends right there, and now Matt Cobbett is the fourth. Per Pete Abraham, Nick Pavetta was 8-5 and five at the 3-2-3 ERA on June 29th. Now he's 8-7 and seven on the year with the 4-5 ERA, so two more losses, and his ERA rose over 1.2 points. He now has 20 earned runs in his last three starts in 13 to third innings pitched. With 23 hits allowed, 13 strikeouts of 7 walks, and 4 home runs allowed as well. That's another 
ugly spot on this Red Sox team is how bad the starting pitching's been, which I talked about. Pavetta has been one of the only positives in the starting rotation because he's the only guy that's been healthy the whole year. Everyone's been hurt at some point. Waka, Hill, Garrett Whitlock, Chris Sale, Paxton. Everyone's been hurt in that Red Sox starting rotation. Honestly, the pitching staff in general, Tannehoke as well. But now with Pavetta struggling over the last two to three weeks now, that's just something the Red Sox couldn't afford. And also with the news now of Juan Soto's situation with him declining his huge contract extension from the Washington Nationals, I think this might actually play a role in Rafael Devis's contract extension. You haven't paid Devis yet, and as seen by the Juan Soto situation, Devis could just do what Soto does or did now, deny the offer when he gets a huge offer if he feels like he's being lowballed because someone else will pay him, definitely. If Devis feels like he's being lowballed, we know someone will pay him. Hyam Bloom, who... At the end of 2019, when he came to the Red Sox, since then, he's only giving one big deal. That was a Trevor Story, a six-year, $120 million deal. The biggest contract he's given out, besides that Trevor Story deal, two years, $14 million. And that was to Kike Hernandez a couple of off-seasons ago now, almost. $14 million is the second most money he has given out in a single deal besides Trevor Story. That's why I don't think Rafael Devis is coming back with Xander Bogats because the Red Sox are lowballing them. We're acting like we're the Tampa Bay Rays or the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Baltimore Orioles where we have one of the lowest payrolls in baseball. We have a payroll to spend money. Spend it. I don't know why the Red Sox are nickel and diming everything. We're not spending money. We're acting like we're, we're a low bottom of the spectrum franchise where we don't have any money to spend, where we have to bargain and gamble you know, with, with one-year contracts or two-year contracts because we can't give out 10-year deals with $300 million. We're acting like we have to lowball everyone. We don't. Your, your biggest contract since coming over in the end of 2019 was a one-year, was a two-year deal at $14 million and then one deal with Trevor Story for six years, 120. Your second biggest deal was $14 million. I mean, high and bloom, he's got to do better. And if you didn't want to pay Mookie Betts, who probably want to leave anyways, but I'm going to get back into that when we talk about the All-Star game. With the looks of it, though, if Mookie Betts you didn't want to pay, Bloom doesn't want to pay Raphael Devins and Xander Bogats, another two homegrown guys. I don't know what this Red Sox team's going to do. I don't know why you wouldn't pay Xander Bogats and, and, and Raphael Devins. Maybe Xander Bogats because of age, and you feel like with the young prospects you have coming up, Marcelo Meyer and Nick York, they'll take over as a middle infield one day with Trevor Story staying at second or shortstop, maybe that makes sense if you were to move on from Bogats, I guess, although I would want to keep him. But Raphael Devis is no excuse for. You have to pay him. I don't know why they haven't yet. And you didn't want to pay Mookie Betts, which I get it, maybe because Mookie wanted too much money and you considered, you know, we're going to have to pay guys like Xander Bogats and like Raphael Devis one day. That maybe moving on from Mookie, which I still don't know if it was the best move, although I love Alex Verdugo, I'm a big fan of him. I think if you're going to trade Mookie Betts, that doesn't mean you're not going to trade Rafael Devis. Now you can't be surprised if the Red Sox were to make a crazy move where they trade a guy like Xander Bogots or J.D. Martinez at the trade deadline, which J.D. wouldn't be as crazy. But I don't think the Red Sox would trade Devis necessarily. I mean, you never know. But if you're going to trade Mookie Betts, you can't be surprised with any of the moves the Red Sox are going to make around Rafael Devis and Xander Bogots, two guys that are homegrown talents. You really don't know what's going to happen with those two. So now I'm going to transition to the Baltimore Orioles. They actually reached 500 for the first time this late into a season since the 2017 season. Their winning streak reached 10 games before losing to the Tampa Bay Rays last Friday night. Their win streak actually reached 10 games for the first time since 1999. As I said, they won 13 games in the 1999 season. So they're just three games short of that this time. Only three games. I mean, not that far off. But what a run from that Orioles team. They had their first seven-game homestand sweep. 
since 2004, and they also have a smaller payroll than the Texas A&M football program. So absolutely ridiculous that they can go on such a run, especially without the big contracts. They don't have those huge deals. They don't have those superstar players like the L.A. Dodgers and New York Mets and the Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees. They're doing this with a very small payroll, a smaller payroll than the Texas A&M Aggies football team, and they're winning games. They have longest win streak since 1999, first sweep of a seven-game homestand since 2004. I mean, things are looking up for this Orioles team. And then if you look at the AL East in general, the AL East is nuts. All teams are 500 or above at the All-Star break. you got the Orioles that are three and a half games out of the wild card. The Orioles are 11-2 in their last 13 games. They also had the first overall pick in the 2022 MLB draft. Took Jackson Holiday out of Stillwater High School. Very good prospect. And they also have five top 100 players in the MLB, top 100 prospects on MLB.com. And before the season, they actually had five players in Baseball America's initial top 100 for the year heading into this season. And that was their third time having that since 1990. And according to Jesse Rogers of ESPN, the Orioles became the fourth team in MLB history to win nine games or more in a row after finishing the previous season with the worst record in the league, which was last year. And another positive note for the Orioles, this is their first time at 500 at an All-Star break since 2016. In 2016, they were 51-36 and at the All-Star break with a 586 win percentage. Then in 2017, 42-46, so four games under 500 with a 477 win percentage. They were 28-69 with a 289 win percentage in 2018. 2019, a 303 win percentage with a 27-61, a 27-62 record, that is. Then in 2021, there wasn't an All-Star game in 2020. In 2021, 28-61 record with a 315 win percentage. 2022, though, 46-46 at the All-Star break with a 500 record. The 2021 Orioles were 46-99 and overall. The Orioles have already tied the 2021 win total with a whole 70 games left to go after the All-Star break now. They were 46-99 and last year. They're 46-46 and right now. Very impressive turnaround for them. On May 15th, the Orioles were 14-21, while the Angels were 24-13. and And this hurts me to say because I really like the Angels. Now the Orioles are 46-46, and and the LA Angels are 39-53. The Orioles, 46-46 and at 500. The Angels are 39 and 53. The Angels before were 24 and 13, and the Orioles were 14 and 21. Just a crazy turnaround. The Angels are still struggling. They're 2 and 8 over their last 10. But the Orioles have just been playing so well. And according to Jeff Passan of ESPN, this comes from a tweet last week. The Orioles are 29 and 20 at the time when he tweeted this since Adley Rutschman made his MLB debut on May 21st, 2022, which is the same record as the Mets over that stretch. A better record than the Phillies, Blue Jays, Cardinals, Padres, Brewers, and Rays. Only the Red Sox, Mariners, Astros, Braves, Yankees, and Dodgers have better records than the Orioles over that stretch. Sox, Mariners, Astros, Braves, Yankees, Dodgers. Only six teams with better records than the Orioles over that stretch since May 21st when Rutschman made his debut. Clearly, he came in and brought a fire onto them and been playing so well. But I'm really happy for this team. I really am. They deserve it, especially considering how much they've been struggling for years now. They were just getting stepped on. They were a doormat to everyone. I'm very happy with their progress and how well they've been playing. Another team that's been hot, the Seattle Mariners, won 14 straight games for the All-Star break. Their longest win streak since 2002, second longest in the Seattle Mariners franchise history. They reached 15 in 2001. They were 10 games under 500 on June 19th and turned their season around completely like the Baltimore Orioles, winning 22 of their last 25 games. I do think, though, the All-Star break could hurt their momentum. Now with the pause, I think having... 
four or five days off now may not play well to their advantage since they're playing so hot. When you're on such a hot streak, you want to keep playing. Sometimes in the NFL, teams get hot after the bye week or teams get hot before the bye week. Then when the bye week comes, that's when they slow down off of it since it kills their momentum or the reverse of it where you're struggling before the bye week, you get the bye week, and then you're great. But I think with the Seattle Mariners, I think they might struggle now considering winning 14 straight games, now having a break. Ottawa's going to play well to their advantage, but they've been playing very well as of late. They currently hold the second wild card spot and have not made the playoffs since 2001. So this could be the first year they make the playoffs. The Baltimore Orioles competing right now, only three and a half games out of the wild card. They could make the playoffs this year. But the Mariners not making the playoffs since 2001, this would be unreal. Imagine they could do it this year. How great a storyline that would be. And I, honestly, even if the Baltimore Orioles don't make it, if they just make it close in September... I think that'll make for one of the best storylines in the MLB over the last few years is the Orioles, a team that's been a doormat to a lot of teams in the MLB over the last five years, especially the AL East, are on the cusp of being a playoff team, which they are right now, but I hope for it in September. And then if the if the Mariners were to make it, being a team that hasn't made the playoffs since 2001, I think that would be historic. I think it'd make for a great headline. And then I think it'd be awesome to see as a baseball fan. Now I'm going to transition to the LA Angels. So since May 25th, they currently hold the worst record in the major leagues with an 11-33 record, 11 wins, 33 losses. But Shohei Otani has been absolutely electric on the mound. He has six wins since May 25th. The other Angels pitches since May 25th have a combined six wins on their own. He has six of their 12 wins since May 25th. Otani has ended every single Angels, Angels losing streak this year. And according to Sam Bloom, an Angels beat writer, he's ended... In his last six starts, the team on a 14-game losing streak ended up beating the Red Sox and ending that losing streak. A 14-game losing streak, a three-game losing streak, a two-game losing streak, a one-game losing streak, a four-game losing streak, and a five-game losing streak. And he's beaten his opponent in all six of those starts and ended the LA Angels losing streaks. The team has not won a game the day before a Shohei Otani start or the day after a Shohei Otani start in any of his last six starts. And he doesn't deserve any of this. Neither does Mike Trout. They've been playing so well, and they really are two of the best players in baseball. But being on the same team and just having not enough help and talent around them, I do feel bad for these guys, especially considering, I mean, this is their prime years. Otani became the second player in Angels history to have 10-plus strikeouts in four straight games, joining Nolan Ryan, the MLB great. In his last six outings since June 9th, he has two earned runs in 39 and two-thirds innings pitched, with 20 hits allowed, 58 strikeouts to 11 walks, a 146 opponent batting average, and a .45 ERA. Absolutely dominant and elite. He's sensational out there. And when hitting in his last six starts, when he's on the mound and he's at the plate, he's 8 for 22 as a hitter with a home run and six RBIs and a triple. Over that stretch since June 9th, he is hitting 290 with eight home runs, 24 RBIs, three stolen bases, four doubles, two triples, and a 964 OPS. And I saw in an ESPN stat as well, he recently became the first player with 10 strikeouts pitching on the mound, two runs batted in, and a stolen base since an RBI became an official statistic in 1920. The first player ever to do that. You look at his dominance just continuing last week against the Houston Astros, one of the best teams in the MLB. Had an unreal two-out, two-run triple to give the Angels a great lead. Ended up winning the game. They ended up winning a very close game, but he gave them a great chance to win the game with that two-out triple. 
He was 2 of 4 in that game with two RBIs and a run scored. Then you look at it on the mound. He improved his record to a 9 and 4 record with a win against the Astros. And six innings pitched, 12 strikeouts, two walks, one earned run, four hits allowed, and lowered his season ERA to 238. It's absolutely electric what he's been able to do for this Angels team this year. And I just feel bad that they haven't been giving these guys enough help. On May 24th, I said that the Angels and Dodgers were my pick for the World Series. I thought it would be a great matchup, L.A. versus L.A. The Angels at the time were 27-17. and 17. When I said it, they had the seventh best record in baseball and actually held the second wild card spot in the American League. Then after I said that, they lost 14 straight games, ended up becoming 27-31. Joe Madden, their head coach, is fired. Since that day, since I made that prediction on May 24th, the Angels are 12-36. and 36. The worst record in baseball since May 25th, so since that day. A 250 winning percentage with a 40 and 122 pace in a 162 game season since May 25th. They're 12 and 36 in their last 48 games. I don't know if I jinxed them, but I feel bad if I did because I really am a fan of them and I love watching their games. And I was really hoping this would be the year they made the playoffs and gave Mike Trout and Shelly Otani a chance in October. They are 11-21 and 21 as a team since they fired Joe Madden. They were 27-28 and 28 under him, which now looks miraculous if you can go just about 500 with this lineup, especially being 27-17 and 17, and then being 27-28 as a whole. With this lineup, besides Mike Trout and Shoei Otani, not many guys have been great this year. I mean, Marsh has been all right, and Joe Odell has shown some, shown some talent, but the injuries have been killing them too. Taylor Ward had an injury for a little bit. Mike Trout had some injuries. He's actually in the IL right now. Missed the All-Star game. Then also Anthony Rendon, third straight year. He's hurt. I mean, things just keep going downhill for this Angels team. As I said earlier, they're 2-10, and 2-8 and eight in their last 10 games. And for the Angels as a whole, 39-53 on the year with a 424 winning percentage and 10 and a half games out of the wild card. 2-12 and 12 in July with a 471 team ERA. They have not had a winning month since April. They were 13 and 15 in May, 10 and 18 in June, and they're, now they're 2 and 12 in July. 10 and 18 in May, 2 and 12 in July just keeps getting worse. They were two games out of 500 in May, eight games out of 500 in June, and now 10 games under 500 in July. It just keeps going more downhill, and I don't know when they're going to hit rock bottom. But I saw this graphic last Friday from MLB Metrics that on May 25th. The Angels had a 74.9% chance to make the playoffs, while the Mariners just had a 5.2% chance. July 15th, last Friday, the Angels have a 3.5% chance of making the playoffs, while the Mariners have a 54.8% chance. So the Angels went down from 74.9% to 3.5%, while the Mariners went from 5.2% all the way up to 54.8%. In Perth Sports on DirecTV, I saw a tweet from them. The Mariners have more wins in their current win streak, 14-game win streak, then the Angels have combined in June and July. They have 12 wins in June and July combined, the Angels, compared to the Mariners' 14-game win streak. And as a fan of this LA Angels team, I feel bad. For Shohei Otani and Mike Trout, I really like this team. I really love watching them play because they have two of the best players in baseball and every single night is going to be a historic night, whether it's Shohei Otani in the mound or him and, Ota- him and Trout are doing something hitting-wise that hasn't been done since 1950, 1960. I mean, every single night has a chance of being something historic when both of those guys step their foot on the field and in the dirt. But they're just not getting any help from the rest of their team. Now I'm going to transition to other news within the MLB. Wet Merrifield's 553-game consecutive game streak for the Kansas City Roars was snapped last week with a toe injury. That was the longest stretch in the major leagues, according to MLB Network, since 2007. Actually, the longest streak in Kansas City Roars franchise history as well. 
the Royals actually had to play the Toronto Blue Jays in Toronto last week, and they had 10 players that are unvaccinated, so they could not play in Toronto, which led to 10 guys being called up and five minor leaguers making their MLB debut in Toronto. Michael Massey being one of those for the Kansas City Royals, the 20th best prospect, had his first major league hit. So at least someone took advantage of the opportunity of being able to play in the major leagues and make their debut. Very cool for 10 more players that typically wouldn't play to get their chance, but five minor leaguers to make the debut. Very exciting day for them, especially considering the Royals really needed bodies. They only had 16 or 15 active players without those 10 guys that aren't vaccinated. Another headline, Freddie Freeman has committed to play for Canada in the World Baseball Classic in 2023. Freddie Freeman, who was not originally an All-Star selection, went on a crazy run the week before he was named a replacement. From July 11th to July 17th, he was the NL Player of the Week, hitting 632 with a 652 on base percentage, a 1158 slugging percentage, 12 hits, 4 doubles, 2 home runs, and 5 RBIs. Over his last 7 games, because he had a great game again last night, over his last seven games, he's hitting 680, 17 for 25 at the plate, which is unreal. Four home runs, five doubles, and a 2060, a 2060, not a correction, 2060, you heard it right, OPS. Unreal run for him. I know he was mad about not being an all-star, and that's why he ended up going off. But all the credit to him, he deserves to be an all-star. Another headline about the World Baseball Classic, Jock Peterson will be playing for Israel, while Mike Trout will be playing for Team USA in the World Baseball Classic as well. So Mike Trout for Team USA. And then you got Jock Peterson playing for Israel. And then also Trey Mancini actually announced he'll be playing for Italy in the World Baseball Classic. So very exciting. I'm excited to see who plays where and all these rosters. When, you know, when the rosters come out and people keep announcing where they're playing. I think it's going to be a very exciting time for the major leagues. Uh, especially the World Baseball Classic. I think it's going to make Major League Baseball get a lot more viewership. I think it's going to make a lot of money for the World Baseball Classic. I think it's going to be great for the game of baseball overall, honestly. So I'm very excited to see it happen. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, so my last headline within baseball, the Toronto Blue Jays just fired their manager last week, Charlie Montoyo. They are 4-1 since firing Montoyo. They were 46-42 and 42 on the year with him as head coach. Montoyo was with the Toronto Blue Jays for three and a half years. He was 236 and 236 as manager, 236 wins, 236 losses. He had a 2 and 8 stretch in his last 10 games before being fired. Was 1 and 9 over a 10 game stretch right before that. That same 10 game stretch, actually. They won their last game with him, though, to improve it to 2 and 8. But I don't think he's really the issue. I think the real issue has been injuries for them with Ryu out with Tommy John surgery, a very good left handed pitcher. Then Jose Barrios, Yusei Kikuchi struggling on the mound as well. Then. If you look at it overall, I mean, some guys just haven't been able to stay consistent. Vlad Guerrero Jr. is not having as great of a year as he did last year, especially batting average-wise. He was 300-plus last year and is now under 300 this season. John Schneider actually took over as their interim manager. He was their bench coach. Now he takes over and is now their head coach, but their interim manager, I should say. But tough times for the Toronto Blue Jays, but I do not think it was Charlie Montoya's fault. Now I'm going to talk about the home run derby. Juan Soto said, actually, before the Homer Derby, that the Nationals did not charter a flight for him to L.A. Looks like he'll be traded soon. I mean, that's another storyline within the MLB that I want to talk about. Jeff Passan of ESPN said it would now be a Herschel Walker deal in return, realistically, for him. But the reason I mentioned him now at the beginning of the Homer Derby recap is because he won it. Had an unreal run in the Homer Derby. Ended up beating Julio Rodriguez. Rodriguez was great as well, though. He actually became the first MLB player to hit 
two 30 home runs, two, 30, two rounds with 30-plus home runs in the same derby. That came from Jim Bowden of CBS Sports. But he became the first player in MLB, home run derby history, with two 30 home run rounds. Very impressive. J-Rod was absolutely sensational to watch. He actually knocked out two-time defending champ Pete Alonso. J-Rod actually made himself some money in the home run derby despite not winning. Soto actually made a million by winning, but J-Rod ends up winning $750,000 for coming in second. And that's actually a lot of money for a guy that only had $700,000 as a salary for the whole season this year for the Mariners because he's at a major league minimum deal. So very good payday there for J-Rod, and then Soto ends up winning a million. So good payday there for him as well. He's going to get paid very soon. Realistically, whatever team trades for him is probably going to be giving him a ton of money. But now I'm going to give a breakdown of what happened in the first round. Corey Seager versus Julio Rodriguez. Very great matchup, honestly. J-Rod ends up winning that matchup 32-24. But it was the first matchup of the home run derby. It was quite a battle. Seager's longest home run was 451 feet. He had 24 home runs, including 10 after his timeout and before the end of regulation. His dad took too long throwing, though. That's the reason I think he actually ended up losing this battle. I think if he had... I think if he played anyone else, I think he ends up winning the first round. I think it would have made a lot better of a second round or third round matchup. I think he would have been a great contender. I think he honestly had a really good chance of going far, especially with how great of a swing he had. I mean, 24 home runs was great in the first round. It was not enough to beat Julio Rodriguez. For Seager, his average home run was 416 feet in the first round. But as I said, his dad just took way too long throwing. That's the main reason he ended up losing. For J-Rod, his longest home run is 463 feet. He had 32 home runs total in the first round. Had 25 before the extra minute, which you get because you have two home runs over 440 feet, and then you also get a regular 30 seconds. So you get 30 seconds for having two home runs at a 440-plus in distance-wise, and then you get 30 seconds anyways added on at the end as a bonus time. His average home run is 420 feet. It was honestly just great to watch. Next up was Juan Soto and Jose Ramirez. Soto had 18 home runs. Hit his 18th home run right before regulation expired. He had five home runs in his first seven swings per MLB.com. His average home run was 106 miles per hour off the bat and 427 feet. All these stats I got from MLB.com through StatCast. Jose Ramirez had 17 home runs. He lost 18-17 to Juan Soto. His longest home run was 421 feet. He did not get the extra 30 seconds added on in the bonus round because he did not have a home run over 440 feet. He needs two of them in order to get those extra 30 seconds besides the regular 30 seconds to give everyone. His longest home run was 421 feet, so still a distance from 440. His average home run was 387 feet, which was actually the lowest in the contest by anyone in any round, and 99.3 miles per hour off the bat. Ended up being very close. Very low scoring, though. Could have easily have been a 25-24 matchup, but 18-17, Jose Ramirez lost to Juan Soto. And then Pete Alonso versus Ronald Acuna Jr. Alonso ends up winning this one 20-19, which was actually the same score as it was in the 2019 Home Run Derby semifinals between the two same players. Alonso beat Acuna in that round 20-19 as well in 2019. Acuna only had one home run over 440 feet, so he only got one 30-second bonus window added on just a regular 30 seconds to give everyone he didn't have two home runs over 440 as for Alonzo Alonzo's longest home run is 480 feet at an average of 429 feet with a 108.3 mile per hour off the bat exit velocity it only took him 30 seconds to actually hit the game-winning home run in the extra minute bonus time Acuna's longest home run is 472 feet at an average of 408 feet with a 107.1 mile per hour exit velocity Next up was Kyle Schwarber, the number one seed versus Albert Pujols. I did not think this was going to be a very close matchup. I thought at the end of the day, Pujols just did not have enough left in the tank since he only has one 20 home run season in the last five seasons, and that was in 2019, I believe. 
Um, but he really just don't, don't have the power anymore. And that's why I really didn't think he'd have a shot in this round. I did say, though, I think the, being back in L.A. since he played for the Dodgers last year and played 10 years with the Angels, I thought maybe he'd get some juice from that. I thought maybe it would give him at least a little bit of a run to make some headlines that Pujols played well, but I did not think he was going to win the first round. Pujols ended up winning 20-19, to so the same score as Alonzo over Acuna. Pujols' longest home run was 434 feet, with a 406-foot average per home run. Shorba, 470 feet was his longest home run, a 419-foot average distance. So for Pujols, he actually advanced out of the first round in all five now of his home run derby appearances. Becomes the first player ever to advance five times out of the first round, according to an ESPN graphic. He had 20 home runs in the first round, which was the most, actually. He hit in a single round of his home run derby career ever, according to ESPN as well. He became the oldest participant in the home run derby ever at 42 years old. After regulation, he had 10 home runs, and everyone thought he would lose easily to Schroeder. So players surrounded him, gave him their respect uh, for all he's done for the game of baseball before he went up for his bonus round of 30 seconds. Then he hit three home runs in the 30-second bonus time since he didn't have two home runs over 440 feet. But then Kyle Schroeder comes up, the number one seed, and also has 29 home runs of the year, and ends up struggling, only hitting 13 home runs as well. So in his bonus time, Schwarber did not have a home run through his first 30 seconds, but hit three in the last 25 seconds to force a one-minute tiebreaker, a swing-off between Pujols and Schwarber. And even though no one expected Pujols to get up again, he didn't even expect to get up again. He thought it was it after his first round and after he went. He thought it was over. Everyone thought it was over. They all said thank you for what he's done for the game of baseball. He has to get up again after thinking he was done. Ends up hitting seven home runs and finishes the 20. Schwarber gets up, only can hit six. And Albert Pujols advances to the semifinals for the fifth time in his career. The fifth time of his career, he's made it out out of five times. And also, he's the only player ever to advance five times, I said. So, very impressive. He ends up going to face Juan Soto in the semifinals. Soto just needed three home runs in his one-minute bonus time to defeat Albert Pujols and ends up doing it rather easily. Soto won 16-15. Pujols had 15 home runs to finish the day with 35 home runs, which is actually the most he had in any single derby of his career. Hit 26 home runs in 2003, 35 in this year's derby, so nine more than he had in any other derby coming into this year. And according to David Adler, an article he wrote on MLB.com, Pujols added three home runs in his extra 30 seconds. And honestly, if he had enough power and he could get two 440-foot shots, his extra 30 seconds he would have gone from hitting two 440-foot home runs would have been huge. It would have made a huge difference. I think he could have actually you know, gone even further maybe. Who knows? You could have maybe even beaten one Soto. At least it would have been a lot closer since Soto got those extra 30 seconds for hitting the 440 feet. But who knows? Very great run there for Pujols and historic as well. And congratulations to him on a great career. Pete Alonso versus Julio Rodriguez was the other semifinals matchup. Julio ends up winning that one 31-25. Rodriguez's average home run was 410 feet. Hit one 450 feet for a long. Hit eight home runs in his bonus time to get him the win. Pete Alonso hit one 463 feet for an average of 427 feet. Had too much of a mountain to climb, though. Julio was just on his A game. J-Rod, this was just his day. Very high-scoring matchup, though. And then in the finals, it was Juan Soto versus Julio Rodriguez. Soto ends up winning that one, 19-18. Great film for the other GMs to see. Now his trade package probably goes up because of how great of a swing he had in the home run derby. It was actually my prediction was Juan Soto beating Ronald Acuna Jr., so I'll take a win there. Um, Soto hit 10 home runs in a 12-swing stretch, actually, to get things going after a cold start, according to MLB.com. Saw that in an article by them. And Soto had 53 home runs in the Derby as a whole, while Julio Rodriguez had 82. 
But at the end of the day, it's really all about timeliness. You've got to hit home runs when it matters. And even though Rodriguez started out with 32 and 31 home runs in the first two rounds, his 18 home runs in the finals just was not enough to beat Juan Soto. But Rodriguez had a great day. Congratulations to him on a great day. Played very well. That was actually the second most home runs in a single derby ever with 82 home runs. He joins now Vlad in the top two. Vlad actually is first with 91 home runs. That's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. with 91 home runs in 2019. Rodriguez became the fourth youngest participant ever in the Home Run Derby, and Soto actually became the second youngest winner ever in the Home Run Derby, just one day off from tying Juan Gonzalez, according to David Adler, uh, an, ad- an article he wrote on MLB.com. So very impressed with showing there for both of those youngsters, Juan Soto and Julio Rodriguez. The future of baseball is in great hands of both of those guys. Next up is the All-Star Game recap to close out this episode. So to start off, I was already talking about Mookie Betts and the Red Sox not paying him. Chris Gasper of the Boston Globe reported that Mookie Betts told him that he would have accepted the 12-year, $365 million deal with $150 million deferred from the Red Sox. He would have accepted that deal had he got that offer from the Red Sox. But the Red Sox obviously didn't give him it. The Dodgers gave him it, and that's where he accepted it. But he said he would have accepted it had the Red Sox gave him it. So very big news there. I, I still love Mookie Betts. But you could just tell he wanted to be in L.A. I'm sure he loves it there. You can just show he wanted to be there and in the spotlight. So the biggest storyline of the entire All-Star game was Giancarlo Stanton, who actually became the fifth player ever to win an All-Star game MVP. He won the All-Star game MVP this year. He's the fifth player ever to win the All-Star game MVP, a home run derby, and an MVP. And he joins Mariano Rivera and Derek Jeter as the only Yankee to ever win an All-Star game MVP. So there's only three of them. He becomes the third one, joining Rivera and Jeter, two legends there. For the AL, they only allowed one hit after the first inning. The first inning for the NL was their big inning. They actually had an RBI singer from Mookie Betts in front of his home crowd, actually in L.A., to score Ronald Acuna Jr. from second base. And then there was a solo home run following that up from Paul Goldschmidt of the St. Louis Cardinals off Shane McClanahan. Luckily, though, for the AL, they did not give another hit after that. Only one hit after that allowed for them in the rest of the game. Another big storyline was Giancarlo Stanton, who was the MVP, with a two-run blast in the fourth inning of Tony Gonsolin who was actually picked in front of his home crowd in L.A. Giancarlo Stanton's actually from California himself. That was followed up with a Byron Buxton home run to give the AL a 3-2 lead. His first All-Star game ever for Byron Buxton. Hard to believe, especially considering how good a player he is. But he's always hurt, so that's probably the reason he wasn't an All-Star before this year. But Byron Buxton, big home run for him in his first All-Star game. He was my prediction, actually, for game MVP. Ends up falling short of that since Giancarlo Stanton had a big game with that two-run blast, that two-RBI Blast was the big reason that AL team came back. And obviously Buxton winning the game with that home run. Technically, that's a game-winning run there. But very good game for both those guys. That was actually Stanton's first All-Star game as a Yankee. His first since 2017. First as a New York Yankee. Another storyline is Miguel Cabrera and Albert Pujols, who were both 0-1 in the game. Pujols, this might be his final, or this is Pujols' final All-Star game, I should say, actually. But this is likely Miguel Cabrera's final All-Star game, too, depending on whether or not he plays another year. But I don't think he's going to, so it's probably yet. Even if he did play another year, it's not a guarantee he'll be another All-Star selection. But he made the All-Star game this year, and same thing with Pujols, because of Rob Manfred, MLB commissioner, picking both of them as his picks, as I believe he called them exemption picks, where the commissioner can pick two guys and put them on the lineup as overrides. I think that's actually the way to put it, override picks to put them on the rosters. But very cool to see both those guys in the game. Uh, Alex Manoa, one thing I loved actually was the mic'd up moments. Alex Manoa of the Toronto Blue Jays being mic'd up in the mound was great. Then Nesta Cortez and Jose Trevino being mic'd up of the New York Yankees. 
Trevino and Cortez talking about pitches and where they're going to throw them and talking about location. It was great to see in communication. I think fans love that. I think it gets everyone more involved. I think it makes things more interesting. I thought it was a great game, and I also thought it was very engaging by the MLB. They did great with the mic'd up moments. In the later innings, Ryan Helsley was the biggest storyline. He hit 103 miles per hour. He was pitching on the mound. Pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals was pitching for the NL. It hit 103 miles an hour on the mound twice against MLB leader in batting average, Lewis Arise. He threw 100-plus miles an hour in eight pitches. There were only nine pitches in the All-Star game that went 100-plus miles an hour, and he had eight of them. The Fox broadcast mentioned that Ryan Helsley did not allow a hit on his curveball all season this year, and he did allow one to Arise. After Arise was following off 102 and 103-mile-an-hour pitches, he ends up getting a hit on Helsley's curveball, which did not allow a hit all year. Helsley's only allowed one hit in his curveball in his whole four-year career, so very impressive at bat there for a rise to even get make contact, never mind get a hit. The AL ends up winning their ninth straight All-Star game, so the dominance continues. And one other big headline, Shohei Otani started the game off very hot with a single on the first pitch of the game, like he announced he would to the, to the crowd of LA, said before, first pitch, first swing, ends up doing just that, gets a hit off Clayton Kershaw after being 0 for 8 versus Kershaw heading into that game. So very exciting game there for the AL, and obviously a great game for baseball too. Very engaging, as I said, with the mic'd up moments. I think they should do more of that during the regular season. Now I'm going to talk about the MLB draft. Just a couple more stats that I wanted to talk about. The Red Sox, who I got a couple of these stats now, from Ian Cundell of SoxProspects.com. He crunched a few of these. The Sox drafted eight hitters in their 21 picks of the draft, with seven of them being from high school and one from college. They drafted six infielders and two outfielders to go along with four high school shortstops, two high school outfielders, and one high school catcher. So good draft there for the Red Sox. Versatility-wise, they picked people at different positions. Before shortstops, I'm not sure why we needed four more middle infielders, but... At the end of the day, that's Hyam Bloom's decision. The Red Sox also drafted 13 pitches, zero of them being from high school, 12 being from college, and one being a junior college pitcher. Eight of them were right-handed pitches and five were left-handed pitches, and 11 of them were primarily relievers. So I guess you could say the Red Sox want to fix their bullpen two to three years from now, and that's what they're doing with their bullpen uh, now is building it up from the farm system bullpen all the way up to the major leagues. And a couple of these stats now to close out are from the College Baseball Hub, which I talked about them in my episode yesterday about the MLB draft. In the first 10 rounds, 78.5% of the picks were Division I baseball players, 16.5% were high school players, 3.2% were junior college players, 1.6% were D2 baseball players, five of them total, 0.3% were NAIA baseball players. And then you look at it, Tennessee as a whole, had the most players selected in the first 10 rounds with nine selections, while Arkansas at eight, Oklahoma at seven, and then statewide, so that's Tennessee, the University of Tennessee had nine guys drafted in the first 10 rounds, University of Arkansas had eight, University of Oklahoma at seven. Then if you look at it statewide, where the college is located statewide, California was the state with the most college players drafted in the first 10 rounds, 31 players from California schools, 20 from North Carolina schools, 18 from Texas schools, 18 from Florida schools, 15 from Tennessee schools, and 15 from Oklahoma schools. So you can just see by that graphic there that Southern schools, and obviously California too on the West Coast, they dominate baseball. The South dominates baseball because of the warmer weather. I mean, they just get better recruits. That's just the way it is. Bigger schools too, historically, for baseball. But 
One last thing I want to mention, the Stillwater Regional had 17 players selected in the top 10 rounds. So the Stillwater Regional of the NCAA Baseball Tournament, which I talked about earlier in my podcast, probably around episode 4 or 5. The Stillwater Regional had 17 players drafted in the top 10 rounds. 15 of those 17 players participated in the regional final matchup between Arkansas and Oklahoma State. That was such a talent-filled matchup between those two schools. And honestly, one for the ages. 15 of 17 of those players drafted from that regional matchup were drafted in the top 10 rounds. 15 players in that match between Arkansas and Oklahoma State were drafted in the top 10 rounds, which is absolutely ridiculous. But quite the matchup, obviously, there. And obviously, you can see why it was such a good matchup. Heavy talent on both sides there between Arkansas and Oklahoma State. Anyways... Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. I really appreciate it. hope you guys have a good one. hope you guys have a great weekend. I hope you enjoyed this segment as well. Thank you guys, as always, for taking the time to listen to this. I appreciate it. hope you guys have a good one. Enjoy yourselves. Thank you.